0: Hello, Mr. Wright. Glad to see you. Nice to see you. What's that you've got in your hand? I have a book here I'm going to ask you a question about in just a moment. I thought in the brief space of a half hour, which is the time we have, uh, what we'd like to do, Mr. Wright, is get as clear a picture as possible for our audience of the essence of your thinking about American architecture and American life. In a half hour. And, uh, well, as much as we're able to do it in a half hour. To launch right into it, would you identify this picture for us?
1: Oh, the picture of the little house on Forest Avenue that I built when I was still with Adam Sullivan. I think it was built before 1893. The little tree grew up, willow tree, through the corridor between the house and the studio, and there was a continual procession around the house
0: where the tree grew through the roof. 1893? people, yes. I think many of our viewers would agree that looks like a house that could have been built last year. And I think that's as good a way as I can think of offhand to get into our subject, which we might call 60 Years of Living Architecture. When did you first decide to make architecture your life work? Well, fortunately, I never had to decide. It was decided for me before I was
1: born. My mother was a teacher, and she wanted an architect for a son. I happened to be the son and of course, naturally, an architect. I was conditioned by her. The room into which I was born was hung with the wood engravings of the English cathedrals made by Timothy Cole. Do you remember those? So I was born into architecture.
0: What was your first job as an architect, Mr. Wright?
1: Well, I think I wanted to be an architect, and as near as I could get to it, in Madison, we were poor. We had no money to send me to a, an architectural school. And Madison, our home, had an engineering school. And a very kind dean, Professor Conover, gave me a stipend to work for him. Worked my way through the course at the university. And I worked my way almost through it. If I'd stayed three months longer, I would have been given a degree as an engineer. But... I was anxious to be an architect, and so I started out for Chicago three months before I would have graduated. And I suppose you could say that my work for Conover, perhaps, as an engineer, designing clips and little details of ironwork was my first
0: architectural job. Would you say that uh, any of Sullivan's ideas in architecture influenced you at that time? Not surely. They were influencing nearly everybody in the country. How so? He was the
1: real radical of his day. And his thought gave us the skyscraper. See, the building was, when uh, buildings first began to be tall, they didn't know how to make them tall. They would put one two-story or three-story building on top of another until they had enough. And I remember Liebermeister would come in and did come in and throw something on my table, the Wainwright Building in St. Louis. He said, right, the thing is tall. What's the matter with a tall building? And there it was, tall. And after that, why, the skyscraper began to flourish. And I think all the skyscrapers you see today were the result of Louis Sullivan's initiative. And that was his kind of mind, his type of thought. You see, he
0: saw the thing directly for what it was. Most people who are at all acquainted with your work know the uh, fact that your your work is organic and uh, intimately bound up with the lives of people. When did this idea first begin to take shape in your work? Well, that's pretty
1: difficult to say. course, in my youth, nothing existed of the sort that I wanted to see happen. It didn't exist anywhere. It had to be made, and it's happened out here on the western prairies of Chicago. The first expression, in
0: humane terms, of what we call now organic architecture. Well, you use the word organic, uh, is that any different from uh, my use of the word modern architecture, in your opinion? Very different because modern architecture is merely
1: something maybe be built today, but organic architecture is an architecture from within outward, in which entity is the ideal. We don't use the word organic as referring to something hanging in a butcher shop, you know. <laughs> organic means, in philosophic sense, entity. Where the whole is to the part as the part is to the whole, and where the nature of the material is the nature of the purpose, the nature of the entire performance becomes a necessity, and out of that comes what significance you can give
0: the building as a creative artist. Well, now then, with that in mind, what do you try to put into a house when you design one? First of all, the family it's designed for as a rule.
1: not always easy and not always successful, but usually so. And we try to put into that house a sense of unity of the altogether that makes it part of its site. If the thing is successful, the architect's effort, you can't imagine that house anywhere than right where it is. It's a part of its environment,
0: and it graces its environment rather than disgraces it. A striking example of a site and house going together is, a, of course, Bear Run House. How did you relate the site to the house? Well, there was a rock ledge bank beside the waterfall,
1: and the natural thing seemed to be to cantilever the house from the rock bank over the falls. See, and the Barrow Run house came into possession of of concrete and steel with which to build a house, and of course the grammar of that house cleared up on that basis, and then of course Mr. Kaufman's love for a beautiful site. He loved the site where the house was built and he liked to listen to the waterfall. So that was a prime motive and in the design. I think you can hear the waterfall when you look at the design. At least it's there. And he lives intimately with the thing he loved. Tell us about your own home, Mr. Wright, Taliesin. Well, Taliesin, of course, was built in 1911 and uh, was a kind of refuge at the time. I was getting a worm's eye view of society and needed to get into the country, and my mother had prepared this site for me and asked me to come and take it, and I did. And, of course, the countryside is southern Wisconsin, low hills, protruding rock ledges, wooded site, and the same thing applied to Taliesin. that applied to, later on, to Bear Run. The site determined the features and character of the house. Lesson really is a stone house, and it is a house of the north, and it was built for the north. I loved the icicles that came on the eaves, and in winter the snow would sweep up over it, and it looked like a hill itself, or one of the hills, and it was built to belong to the region my grandfather came to, and the Indians were still there about 125 years ago. And the valley was called The Valley, lovingly, and it was a lovable place. And The Valley was cleared by my grandfather and his sons, and Taliesin is an instance of the third generation going back
0: to the soil and really developing it and trying to make something beautiful of it. Where did the name Taliesin come from, Mr. Wright? My people were Welsh. My mother's people were Welsh immigrants. My old
1: grandfather was a hatter and a preacher. And they were the cultivated element in the county. And Taliesin, they all had Welsh names for their places. My sister's home was Tonaderry under the Oaks. So I chose the Welsh name from mine, and it was Taliesin a druid, a member of King Arthur's Round Table, who sang the glories of fine art, I guess about the only British who ever did. So I chose Talyerson for a name. It means shining brow. And Talyerson is built like a brow on the edge of the hill, not on top of the hill, because I believe you should never build on top of anything directly. If you build on top of the hill, you lose the hill. If you build one side of the top, you have the hill and the eminence that you desired. you see. Well, Taliesin's like that.
0: Well, in the case of Taliesin West, <clears throat> about some of the uh, the great contrast between that and, uh, and the other Taliesin, when it was built for the same person, since both are your homes, uh, why that difference? Well, you see, the terrain changed absolutely.
1: Here we came to the desert with these astonishing and exciting new forms. In Wisconsin, erosion has, by way of age, softened everything. Out there, everything was sharp, savage. Everything was armed in the desert, and it was an entirely new experience. And so following the same feeling for structure, the same idea of building that we had in there, It had to be absolutely according to the desert. So Taliesin West is according to its site again, according to its
0: environment. And the purpose, of course, is much similar and hasn't changed much. What's the difference between organic architecture and conventional architecture? You mean structurally, I imagine? Yes. You see, the
1: old post and beam construction, you can say this is the post and beam, post and beam. It was all a kind of superimposition. And if you wanted partitions, they cut, and they would butt, you see, cut, butt, and slash. And if you wanted tension, (coughs) you had to rivet something to something and make a connection that might give way. Well, the organic architecture brought the principles together so that a building was more like this, you see, it had, you could pull. on the structure. It had tensile strength owing to steel. And owing to steel, it could have great spaces. And the great spaces could be protected with glass. The Orientals, of course, the Greeks never had any such facility. If they'd had steel and glass, why, we wouldn't have to do any thinking today. We'd be copying them. But now something had to be done with these new materials. These great new resources, and they are tremendous. And because of that principle of tenuity, we could use the cantilever, and into structure came this element of continuity. You see, one thing merging into another and of another, rather than this cut-button slash. In other words, this same element of strength. That's what brought the Imperial Hotel through intact, through the earthquake that principle of tenuity and of flexibility, this, instead of rigidity, which could be broken.
0: Would you recount for us some of the things which are fundamentally your own innovations in architecture?
1: Well, it would be pretty difficult and be a long
0: story, too, perhaps too long for
1: this. First of all came this uh, new sense of space as the reality of the building. Then came the countenance of that space, which is more or less what I termed streamlined. That word streamlined got into the language, I think, about that time through my effort. Then there was the open plan. Instead of a building being a series of boxes and closets, it became more and more open, more and more uh, sense of space. The outside came in more and more, and the inside went out more. That went along until we had a a, a, practically a new floor plan, and it's been referred to always as the open plan. That was the direct result. Then, of course, there were structural implications, which we hinted at a little while ago, of a building that had tenuity, and uh, instead of a building without any, that could fall apart. These houses built upon this plan are good for. 300 years I should say, several centuries, and in that structural uh, dispensation a great many features arose, like perhaps the most important one was gravity heat, floor heat, where the heat is in the floor beneath the slab in a broken stone bed, and with a thick drugget on the floor you have a reservoir of heat beneath you. So you sit warm, you can open the windows and still be comfortable and the children play on a nice warm surface. And if your feet warm and you sit warm, you're warm. Oh, and I think the corner window is something we should mention in connection with innovation. And uh, you can it, judge from what happened to the, by way of the corner window, what has happened to many of the innovations the corner window was indicative of an idea conceived early in my work, that the box was a fascist symbol and the architecture of freedom and democracy needed something beside the box. So I started out to destroy the box as a building. Well, uh, the corner window came in as the uh, comp- all the comprehension that ever was given to that act of the destruction of the box. The light came in where it had never come before. Vision went out and you had screens instead of walls. Here the walls vanished as walls and the box vanished as a box. And the corner window went around the world, but the idea of the thing never followed it. And it became merely a window instead of the release of an entire uh, sense of structure.
0: I've heard indirect lighting uh, attributed to you. Is that? I did the first
1: so-called indirect lighting very early. I guess it was about 50 years ago. Incorporated it behind uh, shelves, cast it on the ceiling, then burying it in the ceiling and in various ways, doing,
0: I suppose, nearly everything that's being done today. I don't know of anything new. You recently built a new church, and... Uh, Uh, It's not typical of most churches in our experience. Could you tell us why? Well, there you see
1: the Unitarianism of my forefathers found expression in a building by one of the uh, offspring. The idea of unity. Unitarian. The Unitarians believed in the unity of all things. Well, I tried to build a building here that expressed that sense of unity. The plan you see is triangle. The roof is triangular. And out of it you get this expression of reverence without the steeple. The building itself, covering all, all in all and each in all, says what the steeple used to say, but says it with greater reverence, I think, with the form of the structure. And I didn't like to build a church in the city. I thought to take it into the country and make it more of a like a country club, and its aspects would be more interesting and inviting to the congregation. so I persuaded them to go out and I went out. but we didn't go far enough, I guess, because when before we got the church built, the town came out, and we found ourselves suburban instead of in the country. But if you're going to decentralize now, you've got to go far. And go fast, because everything is coming along. You can see decentralization everywhere now. You can see the factory going to the country. You can see the uh, merchandiser, impatient for the traffic problem, moving out to the country. I think the gas station was an agent of decentralization. All these things are going on around you, whether you want to acknowledge them or not. Now, it has to be planned for. It's better to plan for it than it is to let it take place as the cities themselves grew. New York, for instance, is just an overgrown, crazed village in plan. And so it is with all our great cities. And what is supposed to be the growth of the city is really going to
0: be uh, finally the death of the city. If you were to plan and build an entire city, uh, including the elements of shelter and work, recreation and worship, as we were just talking about, what would you intend to accomplish in doing this? Well, I think primarily
1: the use of and sympathy with the site, the nature of the ground, and the purpose of the city or town, whatever it might be, and, of course, the character of the inhabitants would be no a little consideration in that connection. In other words, it would be a, a native, a natural performance. Organic architecture is a natural architecture. A natural architecture. Now, what would a natural architecture be? It wouldn't be some eclecticism, something that you picked up somewhere by way of taste and applied to the thing. You'd go into the nature study of the circumstances and come out with this thing from within, wouldn't you? Well, it would apply to a town, apply to a city, apply to the planning of
0: anything. Even to a, a factory? I wanted to ask, when you build a factory, a factory, what do you consider are the most important factors in, in this case, building a factory?
1: Well, I think the human values involved. I think the lives of the workers I don't see why it isn't a more profitable thing to make those lives happy. They'll be more productive. And environment, as we found it to be when we built the Johnson Building, results in a greatly increased efficiency on their part. If you make them proud of their environment and happy to be where they are and give them some dignity and pride in their environment, it all comes out. To the good, where are the product is concerned? The Johnson people have found that out. The Johnson people have a profit-sharing system with their employees. And when they got into that building, why, one of the first consequences was tea in the afternoon. And they didn't like to go home. They loved to stay in the building, be there, come early, enjoy it. As... Charming features of a very interesting, exciting environment. And it is profitable, it does. Uh, I think the phrase is payoff, isn't it, in our country? And the payoff, of course, is the criterion by which everything is decided. Well, even deciding it by way of the payoff, a healthful environment in which The workers can take pride, pays
0: off. Over the years, Mr. Wright, the American press and sections of your own profession have not always treated you kindly. I just wonder if you have any comment about this. Well, I don't see any
1: reason why they should have treated me kindly. I was entirely contrary to everything they believed in. And if I was right, they were wrong. Why should they treat me kindly? It was a question at one time, I suppose, of their survival or mine. And in those circumstances, you know what happens, don't you? Well, has it to it's still happening in a way, but not so much now. But it is true that still the greatest appreciation for what we've done comes from European countries in the Orient rather than from our own country. We're very slow to take things on that occurred at home. It's always been the idea of our people that culture came from abroad, and it did. can't blame them for thinking so. They didn't want to hear of its developing in the tall grass of the western prairies. That was not exciting. In fact, they rather resented hearing about it in that sense. So when it had gone abroad, and it had been understood and appreciated abroad, and the uh, Europeans came over here with it, They could sell it to the American
0: people, and they would take it from them when they didn't like to take it from me. Through the span of your life, there have been great changes in the world, economically, socially, and ideologically. Through years of war and peace, through years that spelled great hopes and great disasters for mankind. Have any of these changes influenced your work or your thinking? No.
1: And it's a little unfortunate that my work couldn't have influenced those changes. Probably, if it had been better understood, I might have had a very beneficial influence on those changes. But I can't say that those changes had any effect on my work. My ideal was pretty well fixed. I was pretty sure of my ground and my star, and I saw no occasion... You see, early in life, I had to choose between honest arrogance and uh, hypocritical humility. I chose honest arrogance and have seen no occasion to change even now. We are pursuing the same center line through all changes. And I'm confident that the principle of our work, which is its heart and center line, is Really, the ideology of a democracy. And if democracy is ever to have a free architecture, I mean, if it's ever to have freedom, have a culture of its own, architecture will be its basic effect and condition, and I believe we have the center line of that architecture. Architecture for freedom and for democracy.
0: Among other things, you're a teacher, Mr. Wright. In your years of experience, what conclusions have you reached as to the roles and duties of the teacher and those of the student? I'm expected to answer that now, am I? I'm no teacher.
1: Never wanted to teach and don't believe in teaching an art. Science, yes, business, of course, but an art cannot be taught. You can only inculcate it. You can be an exemplar. You can create an atmosphere in which it can grow. But I suppose I, being an exemplar, would be called a teacher in spite of myself. So go ahead, call me a teacher.
0: Do you feel that American architecture has progressed generally over the past several years? No, I'm afraid it has not. I think that the
1: effects have been sought and multiplied and the why, of the effect, the real cause at the center of the thing seems to have languished. If they once mastered the inner principle, infinite variety would be the result. No one would have to copy anybody else. And my great disappointment in it all is that instead of emulation, what I see is a wave of imitation.
0: In your long life of practical and artistic endeavor, what do you consider is your most satisfactory achievement?
1: Oh, my dear boy. The next one, of course. The next building I build. Well, go on from there. what What is that? I don't know. I'm not sure. But whatever it is, that will be it.
0: What would you say <coughs> is the greatest uh, disappointment in your career? Well, I think I touched on it a moment ago when I said
1: that Instead of emulation that I'd seen chiefly imitation of the imitation
0: by the imitator. Might that not be the price that you pay for uh, being ahead of your time? Well, I've had to think about it
1: a good deal of recent years. And looking back, I suppose that that's the way the thing always happens. Probably it has always been so. And it's a little more obvious in our day because of commercialized conditions and everybody being in a kind of free-for-all to pull out what he can as soon as he can and make the most of it. So I don't suppose it's any worse than it's ever has been. And maybe that's the way it has to come. Maybe that's the way great ideas eventually obtain by way of abuse well it's a moot
0: question it's not to be settled here nor is it to be settled by me